Well, if you have your worship folder there handy, um, flip over to page 10, and we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 for our uh, passage we're going to dig into a bit this morning. And uh, just to give you some, since we're dropping into really more towards the end of this letter, um, from chapter 8 up to this point, the writer has been expounding and explaining why Jesus is better than all of the priests and all of the sacrifices, everything about the temple, uh, everything that God had given God's people to worship and relate to him in the Old Testament. And so when we come to these verses, though, right here is where the writer begins to turn a little bit and help us to think through, if all of that's really true about Jesus, then what do we do with it? So that's where we're at. So let's look. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 to 25. This is God's Word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. All right, we are, uh, if if you're new here, we've been working our way through the book of Romans and the book of Genesis, and, and using them as conversations partners to help us to understand the whole story of the Bible. But during the month of September, we're taking a break, and we're looking at our vision again as a church. And we started to look at this uh, right at the, at the first of the year this year. We looked at our vision uh, that summarized in one sentence, that Red Mountain Church exists to pursue renewal and healing for all the people and places of Birmingham through gospel ministry and word and deed. And now in the month of September, we're actually going to continue and look at our core values, which you'll see there in in the opening page there of your worship folder if you want to see where I'm working from. But our our core values are gospel centrality, gathered worship, gospel community, and city focus. And as uh, you may remember, I said last week that these are not random in their order. But they build on one another. And last week we looked at gospel centrality. And we began with that because a very simple point the scriptures make again and again. That the fuel or the power or the good news that animates and gives life to dead souls, hard hearts, is the gospel. And only the gospel. And one of the great dangers that we as individuals and, church, and as a church always are facing is the propensity to displace that gospel 
to move it to the periphery or even to replace it even with something else. And one of the biggest challenges that we face is noticing that. It's not always obvious. And so last week we looked at gospel centrality. And what I want to look at today is to try to look at the question, what is perhaps the single most important thing that we can do to keep the gospel at the very center of our individual lives and our common life together as Red Mountain Church? Or another way to put that is, what does it look like to respond to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? And we see here in this passage a negative answer to it. If you look here in verse, verse 25, the writer says that uh, we, are not, we are to not neglect meeting together. He picks up on a struggle that the folks, the churches to whom he's writing are having, that they're having a hard time meeting together. Some are giving up on that. And what does, perhaps, the positive of that look like? Well, at the very heart of what this writer is talking about is what we are calling gathered worship. The second of our core values. Now, when the writer says here, uh, do not give up meeting together, he doesn't only have in mind gathered worship, what we're doing here right now. He has in mind other things. The common life that we have together, whether it be getting coffee or sharing a meal or a community group or, or any situation where God's people are gathering together. But at the very heart of that is what we're calling gathered worship, where we gather once a week and come here to do the very thing we're doing right now. Now, you might be thinking or have heard others say or, or, or offer an objection to this. Why, why do I have to get up and go to church? once a week why isn't it enough for me to, to just take a day and, and do no chores, no errands no work and, and go have a really wonderful beautiful hike out in the woods now in the interest of full disclosure uh, there are many Sundays I feel like that <laughs> uh, I, my guess is if we're all honest you could probably think of three or four or five places you might rather be than here right now and I think we just need to own that and say hey that's how I actually think and to a degree that's okay because what we're doing here really does kind of go against the grain of our own sensibilities and yet gathered worship highlights something very important about the life of faith when you look at the scriptures throughout Nowhere do you see the Bible say the life of faith is an isolated individual undertaking. It is a community effort. And in fact, I would go as far to say that your growth in the gospel, your thriving as a follower of Jesus, depends on gathered worship. It depends on the gathering of God's people. You were never intended to do the life of faith alone. And the very epicenter, the very heart of the life of faith, 
begins with gathered worship. And so what I want to do is look at this passage together and just look at two points. I want to look at the movements of gathered worship and then the motives for gathered worship that we see here in this passage. So first, let's look at the movements of gathered worship. And the writer here gives us three basic movements. And all three of these really are intended to nurture three characteristics of the, of the life of faith. They're intended to deepen your faith, strengthen your hope, and give you wisdom to love. Faith, hope, and love. So the first of these three movements, I'll tell you what they are. There's drawing near, holding fast, and stirring up. Drawing near, holding fast, and stirring up. Let's look first at drawing near. Look in verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Drawing near to God, it implies that perhaps we aren't near to Him, or that there was a day and time when we were estranged from Him. And in fact, the Scriptures describe all of us as His enemies by virtue of being born as human beings in need of being reconciled. And this, this practice, if you will, drawing near, implies that it's now possible. That what wasn't possible is now possible. Then God has made it possible. Or to think of another way, drawing near hits on those perhaps unnoticeable to anybody else in your life. But the ways in which we keep God at arm's length or remain distant or far off. But what does it mean to draw near? How are we to draw near to God? Look where he says here, there are two basic, two basic aspects to this. With a true heart and full assurance of faith is the first. What's he talking about? He's talking about those parts of you no one can see. Why are you here this morning? A true heart with full assurance of faith means drawing near is not pretending to be someone you're not. Drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, perhaps you could put it like this, your public life and your private life align. That who you are in private when no one else is around is the same as you are when you are around other people and they see you and how you talk and how you act and the choices you make. In other words, drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith means drawing near to God in such a way that you're not ignoring or denying what's really true about you. But secondly, it's drawing near with our hearts sprinkled clean, our bodies washed with pure water. Now this is all kinds of rich imagery from the Old Testament. Things that were necessary for the priest to do on behalf of the people in order for them to approach God. 
to have a relationship with him. And commentator after commentator on this passage says the writer of Hebrews here is actually thinking of Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel writes, and this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. In other words, what he's saying here is that to draw near to God does not mean that you have to draw near to God in order to be cleansed, in order to be sprinkled clean, or to be washed pure. Now, the, the actual grammar here describes something that has already happened in the past. It's describing if you are a believer in Jesus, what is already true for you. Another way to put it is, Jesus makes you fit to draw near to God. Your drawing near isn't what makes you fit. You're already fit. And it's not because you personally are pure in all of your thoughts and intentions and motives and desires and actions and words. No, it's because you're covered by the purity and beauty of Jesus. That He has cleansed you. He has washed you. And there's a definite reference here to Christian baptism. That baptism is that outward sign of an inward spiritual reality that Jesus alone can do. So drawing near, that's the first movement. Drawing near to God. But let me ask you this, what keeps you from drawing near? And and let me try to get under that question a little bit. You can be here this morning and still resist drawing near. What is preventing you from drawing near to God? with full assurance, with a true heart, knowing that you've been cleansed and therefore you are welcomed to draw near. Perhaps there's doubts, maybe there's unbelief that you're struggling with, maybe it's a condemning conscience, maybe there's shame that continues to plague you, maybe it's just hardness of heart. But what if you are drawing near? Then what? Well, the second movement tells us, the writer says, hold fast. Drawing near, and secondly, holding fast. He says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He says here, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Think about this for a moment. This is gathered worship. What is it that unites us together? Is it our socioeconomic status? Is it our race? Is it our background? Is it our sensibilities? Is it even our liturgy? Because it looks like other churches that maybe do the same thing. And the answer to all those questions is no. That is not what unites us as believers in this local place or with Christians throughout the world and throughout history. What unites Christians together 
is our common confession. Our common confession of hope in what Jesus Christ has done. Now what's interesting here is he says, how are we supposed to hold fast to this confession? And he says, without wavering. And I can't read that word without wavering, without snickering. Because I waver all the time. How is this even realistic? How can he say to you and me, in the realities of life as you know it, the ups and downs, the pains and the sorrows, the triumphs and the victories, all of it, how can he say hold fast without wavering? And the answer is, because he who promised is faithful. In other words, what he's saying here is, what keeps you and I from holding fast is really having to look at two things. Where have you placed your hope today? And what do you honestly think and believe about God? If you want to know why you waver, why you struggle, ask yourself those two questions. Where are you putting your hope today? What are you confessing to be your hope today? And what do you actually think about God? Because what he's saying here is that it is God's faithfulness that keeps you steady. That enables you to hold fast. It is his character. It's his faithfulness. And he says again and again, it's impossible for him to lie. What that means is, it is possible for you to have hope that never wavers, regardless of what's going on in your life. And why is that? Because your hope isn't anchored in what's going on in your life. Your hope is centered on a God who is faithful, who keeps his promises How do you know that? Because he didn't even spare his own son to prove to you that he is faithful, that he will never leave you or forsake you. So we have drawing near, holding fast. What's the third movement? Stirring up. Once we have drawn near to God and in drawing near to him, discovered that he is one that we can hold fast to, What follows from that? Well, that we begin to help others to do the same. That he says here, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Drawing near, holding fast, leads to life-giving relationships. This is the love part. Faith, hope, and love. The three movements of gathered worship. This idea here of let us consider. Think about that. That's a wisdom word. That's a discretion word. That's a word that means that you must take time to get to know one another. To listen to one another. To understand strengths and weaknesses. Hopes and sorrows. And begin to think about how do I stir up this person with the good news of Jesus. 
one of my uh, pastor friends, we were talking about, you know, h- how, do you, how do you try to love and care for so many different people in even just one congregation who are so different in so many ways? And I'll never forget, what, one of the pieces of advice he gave me was, you need to always think about, before you say anything to anybody, what can they handle? And his point wasn't that you don't ever say something that might upset someone or maybe um, put them back on their heels. But the question was, what do you think they can handle? I think that's an appropriate way to think about this. How do you stir up one another to love and good deeds? Well, one, it begins by sharing. You sharing your life with someone else. Letting them see a real life example of what it looks like for God to work in someone's life. Another way of stirring up one another is listening. And perhaps a third one is absorbing. You are never going to actually stir one another up to love and good deeds if you're also not willing to absorb arrows from one another. Because to love somebody means you're putting yourself in the way of perhaps the very things they most want, but not what they most need. So sharing, listening, absorbing. How do we stir one another up to love and good deeds? Now, if you've been around recent weeks, we've been talking about community groups, and one of the things I've talked a fair bit about is a ministry mindset. Here it is. When the writer says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, good works. That's what the Bible calls a ministry mindset. It's molding your entire life towards other people and what God would most desire for them. Now, why do we need to do this? Look here at the end of verse 25. He says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do we need to stir one another up? Because you need to be encouraged. And this is a question I have for us as a congregation. Are we a congregation where you are encouraged or where you are encouraging someone else. Perhaps the greatest gift you can give one another is encouragement. I promise you, at some level, every single one of you who walked in this room this morning needs encouragement. And why is that? He says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, put simply, life's hard. And it's easy in the midst of the hardness of life to think, man, what's the point? It's not working. It's never going to work. I keep trying to be patient with my kids. Never seems to get any better. Or I keep trying to be the kind of husband or wife to my spouse that 
they would like me to be and I would like to try to be and I just, I'm not and I don't know what to do. Or, you know, I keep trying to do a good job at work and it never seems to pan out. You need to be encouraged. And all the more as the day approaches, what day? The day the Lord Jesus comes back. And why do you need to be encouraged because of that? Because there are better things yet to come. Even more than encouragement just to get through today, you need encouragement that there are better things yet to come. That Jesus isn't finished yet. He's not finished yet with you. He's not finished yet with his creation. He has a new heavens and a new earth to give you. He has eternal suppers he wants to enjoy with you. Let us consider how we can stir one another up to love and good deeds. Those are the three movements. Drawing near, holding fast, and stirring up. But what if you're here and you feel worn out? You don't know if you can do that. You lack the energy or the motivation. What then? We need to look at what are the motives for gathered worship? And there are two. We have confidence and we have a great high priest. This is the power for gathered worship. This is the reason for it. We have confidence. Look at what he says. Verse 9, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, why we have confidence? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Where is our confidence? It's not us. It's the blood of Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus has opened up the new and living way through the curtain. Now, what's he talking about? This is, again, Old Testament language of the temple. There was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from all of God's people. And the only person who could go behind that curtain was the high priest. And he could only go behind that curtain once a year. But what do we read in the Gospels when Jesus is hanging on the cross Right before he dies, Luke chapter 23 tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. In other words, it was removed. That very thing which was meant to keep you from entering is now replaced, according to the writer of Hebrews, with the flesh of Jesus, the body of Jesus, when he says the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Where does our confidence come from? Because Jesus, by his body, his suffering and his death, has not just gone behind the curtain. He's removed the curtain. And now there is full and free access for you to enter into, to draw near, to hold fast, to stir one another up, because Jesus has gone where you could never go before. He says, we have confidence. But what if that confidence wavers or is gone? What if you're afraid to draw near? He says, we have a great high priest in verse 21 over the house of God. That very same Jesus 
who has removed that curtain. He is the high priest, the great high priest over God's house. Now, what's a high priest? Uh, as I was thinking about how to try to make this um, as simple as I know, a high priest, a high priest makes it possible for you to go where you've never been able to go before. Think about that. And I, and I want you to think about perhaps when you were young and you were learning to swim. Or maybe... Uh, you're, you're in this room and you are still learning to swim. And you were standing on the edge of the pool and perhaps a mom or a dad or a grandparent, they're in the pool and they're standing there at some distance, maybe four or five feet with their arms out to you, telling you to jump in. Come, and, come jump in. I'm here. And there's hesitation, oftentimes tears, doesn't go very well. What's happening right there? That mom or dad in the pool, if you will, is like a high priest. You are making it possible for that child to go where they've never been able to go before. And how are they able to go there? They're able to go there because you are there. You are there to catch them. They are not going to drown. You will keep them alive. Or another way to think about it is maybe you have a friend who uh, got you tickets to a big athletic sporting event or a concert and you got backstage passes and you got to see that concert or that game from vantage points you never thought you'd be able to see, maybe on, on the sideline, or maybe from backstage or from the side looking at the musicians as they're playing. And this person was able to get you those tickets, and you got to see things and experience things you never maybe thought you would. How does that, that person is like a high priest. They, were, and they, they made it possible for you to go where you were never able to go before. And how is that possible? Because of that person's status or privilege or connections. See, Jesus is a great high priest over the house of God. Jesus makes it possible for you to go where you've never been able to go before. And that is right into the very throne room of God. Without fear. Without shame. Without guilt. Because Jesus is there and he's permanently there and he wants you permanently there with him but not only that Jesus as your high priest makes it possible for you to go where you've never been able to go in your own life maybe you are plagued with depression and it's debilitating Maybe you were plagued with fear and anxiety and you've tried all kinds of different uh, medications, all kinds of different counselors, and nothing seems to help. Jesus Christ, as your great high priest, really and truly, makes it possible for you to go places in your life 
you've never been able to go before. These are the motives of gathered worship that give us the rationale and the power to practice this together, to draw near to God together, to hold fast to this Jesus together, to consider how can we stir one another up with the good news about this Jesus that leads to love and good works in Jesus' name to and for one another and to and for our city. That's why I had us read a number of verses earlier from Hebrews. Because Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost. And he's able to save you as you draw near, however weakly, however failingly, however fearfully. He can save you to the uttermost. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage. We give you thanks that there is real beauty and power and promise in our gathering together week in and week out. And Father, we ask that you would continue to help us to cherish these moments, to encourage one another, to continue to hold fast to this good news about Jesus. Help us to grow in wisdom as we live life together and share life together. And we ask that it would bubble out into our lives as a local body of believers. But even more than that, we ask that it would bubble out into our friendships and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our city. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.